In season three of Cultured, we're featuring change makers from the arts. Today, I'm excited to be talking to Dave McKee, legendary band director for Virginia Tech Marching's band, Marching Virginias, for 32 years. I'm also joined by Susan Nealand, who was in the marching band under Dave's leadership and also heads up our marketing team here at Eagle Hill. We thought it would be insightful to hear from someone who lived the culture that Dave established for the marching band. Welcome, Dave and Susan. Thank you both for joining us. I wish I had a drum line on hand to extend you the type of welcome that the band is so famed for. Thank you. Thank you. So let's just dive right in. Dave, Lane Stadium is legendary. With over 65,000 fans, not only is Virginia Tech considered to have one of the loudest stadiums in the country, but it's also been voted the number one in ESPN's top 20 scariest places to play football. So you're the band director for the Marching Virginias for 32 years. What was it like to lead 330 college students as they entertained the Virginia Tech fans in the scariest stadium in the U.S.? Well, it was a scary job in many ways, but uh, it was most of all an unbelievable honor, as it is to speak with you all this morning. It was a great honor to have that position for that long. It was a challenge that, came, that changed almost on a daily basis, just always opportunities for new things and new horizons. The biggest thing it was for me was an opportunity to have students who became lifelong friends. In my last year, there were 10 second-generation MVs on the field, meaning mom and or dad were students of mine earlier in my career. That was both very humbling and very, very cool. Oh, I can only imagine how proud you must be to have seen that thread. Yeah, it was amazing. It was, you couldn't yell at these kids. I couldn't. You know, I'd look at them, <laughs> I'd see their parents. I'd see their, their parents' faces coming out of them. I'd get a tear in my, it was, yeah, but it was, it was awesome. So I'm curious, why why was, what from your perspective, why has it been voted the top scariest places to play football? I think it's really loud. Susan would agree with this. It is, uh, you know, there are there are bigger stadiums out there. The Horseshoe at Ohio State, Texas A&M. But uh, we had students who went to those games over the years, and they'd always come back and say, you know, there were more people, but it wasn't loud, as, as loud as Lane is. Lane Stadium, because of the way it's built, the front row is within 15 yards or less from the field. And people who are up on the front sideline make noise, and people 10 rows back make noise. And it's it's uh, it's remarkable how loud the place is. And I think at the point where it became the scariest place to play football, Tech was winning like crazy. I think they're winning some now. But I think that at that point, it was a tough place to play. And, and, you know, Virginia Tech and ESPN decided that Thursday night games were a great idea. So, the, you know, the band, was the, the, band, the team, the, the whole area here was on live on TV every Thursday night. And they kind of felt like they had something to prove. And so loud was one of the ways we did it. <laughs> so how do you stay focused in keeping your team focused with it? so much distraction, especially being so loud? Well, you know, I think, I think distractions are a way of life for all of us now. And I think, you know, never under, you're going to hear this one common line throughout our time together. Never, never assumed. I mean, I worked with brilliant kids. You know, never take them. They never take that for granted. They were all smart. They were all motivated. They wanted to perform well. And they, they just kind of shut out all the distractions, whether it was the crowd, whether it was the game, whether it was the weather, you know. Dave, one of the things I am always telling people about who haven't been to a football game at Tech is the experience when you when the football players come onto the field 
and Metallica's Enter Sandman is playing. The entire stadium, you know, everybody's jumping up and down, screaming at the top of their lungs. Like I literally get goosebumps every time I'm there. And I was reading as we were doing the research to interview you today, and I didn't realize, at least the story goes, that it was a marching Virginian who came up with that jumping up and down on the bleachers. So I'm kind of curious, like, what's really the story behind that? Ah, uh, stories are great, aren't they? They're wonderful. Well, you know, <laughs> let's, let's start with this reality. I think Enter Sandman and a lot of great game day traditions at Virginia Tech began like they do in many sporting events. That is, they began by accident. You know, I don't know the exact game or date, but I think the marketing folks at Virginia Tech started using Sandman in the fall of 2000. And later that fall, uh, the marching Virginians were doing pregame. So we were actually on the field in the tunnel for the team to run out through. It was brutally cold and kids are standing there and they're pumped about the game. They're excited. And, and one kid, whether he was excited or whether he was just cold, started jumping up and down. And the kid next to him started jumping down. And it, of course, it doesn't take long. You know how this, the mob mentality, uh, <laughs> the, moment, the moment one kid was jumping, 10 kids were jumping, 330 were jumping. Uh, within seconds, the whole, the whole stadium was jumping. And, and literally, literally within seconds, a new tradition was born. You know, and, and many, many of those game day traditions literally just happened by accident. That was one of them. Oh my God, that's so cool. That is cool. <laughs> it, was, it, was, it wasn't cool, it was cold. I remember how cold it was that night. You know? And I remember, I remember when they came off the field, I had, as I might've been prone to do it from time to time, I had this kid in my eyeballs who had started this. And you know, as they came off the field, he came up to me and said, what do you think? And I said, what were you thinking? And of course, by then, you know, there was no stopping. It was, it was a great, it was a great thing. And again, it just happened at the moment. It was spontaneous. Nobody scripted it. It just happened. Sometimes it's just the way it works. So while you led the Marching Virginians, Virginia Tech football also went to a totally other level and consistently ranked a top 20 team. So tell, talk to us a little bit about that journey from, a mar from the Marching Virginians perspective and how it evolved with the recognition that Tech was getting on a, on a national platform. Yeah, I'd love to say the Marching Virginians became a household name all by themselves, but we absolutely did this on the back of Frank Beamer and everything he built in football. He once described the Marching Virginians to me as the soundtrack of Lane Stadium, and I think I think he he was he meant that. I think the the long stretch of bowl games for the band gave us the opportunity to share the field with some of the truly great bands in this country: Texas, Florida State, Alabama. We were able to learn from them and steal ideas from them. I told you I was a thief. I, you know, seeing, being on the field with Texas gave us ideas that we hadn't had before. We just didn't know. I mean, many, we didn't have a lot of bands coming to Blacksburg at that time because it's, it's a quote, so far out of the middle, you know, nobody wants to come all the way down there. But I think that, that helped a lot. I think seeing all those bands and bowl games helped. I also think, again, I think of the Thursday night games and there was always a camera near the band, and there was always a sound that was being mic'd. So uh, we had to impress upon the students that everything mattered just a little bit more. So let's talk a little bit more about your idea, this concept of stealing ideas, because I think this is something I, I talk about with my team, is how, what, is your, what are your various different sources of inspiration 
that you can tap into in order to be able to find new ideas and bring them back to either your organization, your role, your team, whatever it might be. So, so let's talk a little bit about that, seeing these other bands and being this thief and stealing ideas. What ha tell me, tell me a little bit more about that. Well, probably like everybody else, you know, we all we all think we know all the answers, particularly when we're younger. And uh, the best way to learn is by dropping your guard and picking up a phone and calling a colleague and saying, hey, that was really cool. How'd you do that? Or, hey, we're having a situation with, with leadership, for example. How can we do this better? I, I think you, you watch other bands, you watch how they operate, you watch how they are taught. I I was I'm a conductor as well, you know, with a concert band, and I've learned a lot from watching other conductors, both good and bad. I watched a lot of bands rehearse, and it was not a it wasn't a welcoming attitude. It wasn't a an, a, an environment that I thought seemed reasonable to me. But you you know you go watch these things, you listen to people, then you make your own decisions. You know, I had lots of great mentors in my life, but I also had a phone and a computer as a band director, and I talk to people and I talk their ear off, and mostly I've listened to them, what's working for you, what's not working for you. And then you, you, know, then you steal what you like and what fits, what fits into your program. Virginia Tech is different, the, the marching Virginians are different from many university bands because not one of those students is on a scholarship. They're there because they wanna be. When you see a scholarship band rehearsed and everybody's getting paid to be out there, that changes the mentality. When, when you're working with a, a volunteer group, you have to bring something to the table that's, that welcomes them, that makes them feel like this is important to you and to them and that they matter. And I think, so I, I, I stole a lot over my career and it, it's, it's kind of humble. The humbling part now is I go to rehearsals for you know, high school band directors in the area when they invite me out or college groups and I hear my, my words <laughs> being taught to other bands. So that's pretty cool. So Dave, one of the things we talk about at Eagle Hill is this idea around culture and yep. how it is sort of that unique personality of an organization, how it expresses its values, its ethics, its beliefs. And for me, when I was at Tech, you know, the MBs were family. And it's where I learned about responsibility, doing my fair share, like sticking to a common goal. Um, but more importantly, I feel like I really learned to value and respect my peers, my friends. And it took a long time for me, but I ultimately realized that you really created this safe environment for us to sort of test out things and, and become adults. And, you know, I'm kind of curious, is this is this culture that you created for the MVs, was it something you consciously did? And, you know, if yes or no, you know, how, how did you go about that? I think if, if you're asking me if I had a little book with all my goals written down in it, uh, no. I think, well, let's talk a couple things. Number one, I, I do believe you're right. The MVs are family, but we never preach that. And I don't think anybody's over there. Polly's not preaching it now. Uh, I think I say the preaching for times that matter. But, but like parents, like parents, you pick your battles and the really important moments. And I think, I think for me, an important thing to do was to model what I wanted from you all. So, and, and in everything I, you do, you know, whether it's, uh, whether it's work, whether it's family, whether it's how you, you know, take care of yourself at the grocery store, whatever. I, I think kids watch you as a role model. 
uh, I think your employees watch you as a role model. I mentioned this before. I had spectacular mentors in my life. And I think I adopted many of my own core values from those folks. And I never, like I said, I never listed a, a, compiled a list of what was important, but I just kind of knew what I thought was important and kind of, kind of went from there. And I think, you know, I think as a leader in the band, you realized that I gave you a position of leadership and then I gave you the kind of what you needed to do, but then stayed out of your way. I would supervise, but not, not pick at things. I think with any group, you have to you have to give the notion, not the notion, but you have to you have to show that everybody's important, everybody's valued. You may have heard, I may not have had this line back when you were in school, but 330 heads are better than one, and I totally believe that. Uh, and you know, you trust you trust people, and you treat them with dignity and respect, and I think that creates a community of mutual respect. So you talked about you have a, a volunteer band, not a scholarship band. So how do you go about identifying and attracting the right talent for your band when you've got to convince all these kids to dedicate so much time and energy and not get paid for it? <laughs> you know, I, I wish I had the right answer to that. Uh, I think you're always recruiting I think you don't take it for granted. It's probably the you know the people part of of this business for me, and the people part of your business is getting the right people on the bus. You know, I was I was never shy about encouraging them to step up, become involved. I think the personal touch is important. I when kids would walk into orientation, I made an effort to get to know them a little bit, talk to them about their major. But uh, you know you can't take it for granted, and, and you have to work on it. But let's let's remember too that Virginia Tech, even back in the day, attracts great students. And I would see a student walk in who wanted to major in marketing, or engineering, or architecture, and and that was going to be their academic home. But they were doing that because that offered them a career down the road. They were looking for something else. They were looking for a place to have fun to create the environment that Susan talked about before, as far as, uh, you know, having the opportunity to lead their peers and things of that nature. Doing a marching band on a university campus is the largest group project a student will ever do. And, you know, I've, I've over the years, I've watched a lot of students roll their eyes about having to do a group project. And I would say, what's the problem with that? And they'd say, well, uh, I, just, I just hate it. People don't do their part. And I said, look, You've been part of the greatest group project on this campus out here on this field. If you can do this, you can do anything. And that was usually it. You had talked about how you kind of know in your heart what are the right things to focus on and what you want to focus on, but you didn't necessarily write them down on a piece of paper. So tell us a little bit more about, even though you may not have written it down on a piece of paper, what were you communicating in terms of to the Marching Virginias in terms of culture, in terms of what was important, in terms of setting that tone at the beginning of every season? What is it that you really focused on and communicated directly to your to your band members? Well, let's start with the leaders because there were two different things. I, I think I always worked with the leaders to help them become better leaders. And most of these, most of these students, Susan a few minutes ago gave the idea that she had no leadership chops before she walked in there. That's hardly the truth. Again, many of these students were members of their high school band, or they were involved in leadership in their high school band. But uh, they, they were absolutely the best role models I had to reinforce, whether it was behavior or performance etiquette 
or you know let's let's make this better those those students were the ones who affected their peers and the peer pressure in a group like the marching virginians was much stronger than any pressure i could put on anybody i think i mean i truly believe that i i could i could have the look of you know of death or i could have the look of oh i really feel bad about how you let me down but for the student leaders to look at the other kids in the band and say we've got to raise our bar that was much more important than than me doing it we worked a lot with the leaders in, in pre-season just talking about leadership roles and responsibilities and you, you know you've both been through these types of uh, events everything doesn't stick but if everybody walks out with one kernel of knowledge or something they can chew on to make themselves a better leader that's important and then with the, with the kids of the, with the with the other members of the band they would see how the leaders were acting and they'd say well you know again smart kids they all aspired to be that leader down the road i mean the number of every year i'd uh, i'd interview for leadership and a kid would walk in the door and they'd say i saw susan do her job and i want to be like susan and and that's a compliment to to both that youngster the, the new leader but also an affirmation to me that I put the right person in the right place. And I don't know if that answers your question or not, but I'm sticking with that as my answer. <laughs> All right, I like it. Dave, one of the things I was telling Melissa about and, and you know, as we were talking about who to interview this year was uh, the story about how you know everybody's name. You know a lot of people's band directors' names, you know, it seems like every MB you ever taught's name. And I was telling the story about how Sarah, Amy, and I one day dropped by an MB Ooh. practice. <laughs> yes, I got it. I was, it was a joke. I know. <laughs> but I, I mean, it had been 25 years since I'd seen you, and, and Sarah had seen you. We walked up to the side of the field, and you came running over and knew both of our names, gave us a giant hug. And it just sort of like reaffirms, like you're so good at relationship building. And so I just wanted to, you know, what is your secret about that? And then how did you use that relationship building? How did that factor into creating that MB culture? Uh, who are you? I don't remember. Oh, <laughs> um, I think you, you hit the nail on the head a moment ago, Susan. You talked about relationship building. Building relationships is the key, okay? And it, it has a direct impact on the culture and everything else. I, I think in a place like Virginia Tech, as you know, it's easy to become a number, particularly in your major. And so I had the opportunity to work with people over four or five or six years, depending on how, how long they're here, or in the cases of a couple of 10 years, who, who were involved in the band. I may be the only person on the campus who actually knows their name, where they're from, you know, and what they're, what they're doing in their life besides showing up for the class. And I, I guess I kind of took that as a responsibility. I thought it was important. The payoff is seeing you guys 10 years, 20 years, 25 years, 30 years down the road, and still having a relationship, and we can kind of restart right where we were. You know, uh, let's face it, social media has been a big help with this, too. I also use flashcards with freshmen. I would take a picture. And on the back, we would have their name, what they played, and where they were from. And if I knew their high school band director, if I knew what high school, you were a Virginia Beach girl, am I correct? No, well, no, I wasn't. I was from Carlisle, Pennsylvania. That's where I graduated. Oh, okay. All right. 
All right, but it, you know, so now, so see, I sailed already. I, I <laughs> oh, no. That's all right. I went to so many high schools, you probably could have gotten it right. <laughs> But you hung out with a young lady, a tall blonde named Tony, exactly. and she was from Virginia Beach. Yep, um, that was my roommate. But, you know, I always thought I always thought it was important to know names and where they were from. And, you know, again, if you're going to commit four years to uh, to listening to me and and doing what I ask you to do and being involved uh, in rain, sleet, snow, everything else, and and having another crappy sandwich, the least I can do is learn your name and where you're from. And I always, I always thought that was important. And I also wasn't shy about walking up to somebody as a freshman. And I, you know, we've been on the field eight weeks, and I didn't know who that was. Uh, they weren't getting off easy, that easy. I'd walk up to them, and grab their shoulders, say, "Tell me who you are." I'm sorry, I don't remember your name. And I think again, I, I think that's important. You know, I would hate it when a kid would come up to me in, in their sophomore year and say, "You don't remember me, do you?" Well, I played trumpet last year. Oh no, you know, I, I just. I wasn't going to let that happen. By the end of a, by the end of every season, I knew every kid in the band. And again, that's paid off to during life. I mean, Dave, I think a lot of leadership experts would agree with you, right? If I can think, you and I were talking earlier about uh, reading books and reading leadership books. And if, if I can think of my own experience in reading leadership books, one of the one of the things I always say about CEOs is you, you should make an effort to know who your people are that are working for you. So I think you're you're onto something, or you were onto something there for sure. Yeah. Well, you. I think there are a lot of businesses that go the other way that, you know, the, the, the leadership is so busy being the leadership and doing the important things in their lives that they forget who those people are below them. And, you know, one of those people down there one day is going to have their job and, or, or they're going to open a company that competes against them or whatever. And I think, I think the little bit of effort that you spend in learning names pays off, uh, you know, in my own life, I can only tell you, I mean, again, it's like the 10 kids my last year who were MV, you know, uh, children of MV alums. You can't put a price on that. People make the difference in everything. So let's switch topics for, for a few minutes. One of the things I have learned in my own role as CEO is that there's nothing that shines a brighter light on culture than a crisis. And one of the things I, as I think we would be remiss not even talking about, and one of, had to have been one of the most trying times in your career was after the wake of the 2007 mass shooting on Virginia Tech's campus. So sure. talk to us about the moment you found out about this, the path from that moment you took to identifying the steps that really took you to leading your band through that trying time. Okay. Well, I, you know, it's, uh, it's, you're right. We, all of us who worked through that time, uh, before and uh, and after, will always mark many of the uh, the events before and after, as before the shooting and after the shooting. Uh, I don't think we could get away from that, and 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 it is what it is. I, I the day the day of the shooting, I can tell you, I was in the office early, which at that point all my kids were were. I didn't have to wait at the bus stop for anybody in the morning, so I could go to work whenever I wanted to, and I I chose to go in and enjoy the peace and quiet in my office early in the day. Uh, I was in my office when somebody came in and said there had been a shooting at AJ, knowing that a number of marching Virginians still at that time lived in East AJ. I decided, what the heck, I'm just going gonna, gonna to walk over. I knew that the phones would be pretty much non-working, so I just decided to walk across campus. It was brutally cold and windy, and along the way, one of the other 
uh, another student came by and said, "Hey, I, I heard there's a shooting over at AJ. He was uh, he was in leadership of the band that year." And I said, "Well, let's just walk together." We walked over to AJ. I couldn't get in one door. I came around to the front of the building where there were a couple of police cars, and uh, one of the Blacksburg uh, officers was at the door. A guy I had known for many years, and he said, uh, "This is a crime scene." And that's all I could tell you. I knew that Ryan Clark, a.k.a. Stack, was an RA in the building. Uh, I did not at that point know that he was involved in the incident at all. But uh, I went back to the office and, uh, and did my best to keep students sheltered. Uh, at one point, we probably had about 20 people in my office. One of the stories I will always remember is a young man who uh, was talking and was, was jovial and laughing until he realized that his sister was in Norris Hall and went utterly silent. Long story short there is she was fine. But during the whole, during, during most of the day, you know, as the reports came in, the numbers kept going up and we could, we could confirm that people had been shot in AJ and people had been shot in Norris. Um, it got more somber, it got more quiet, but it was just a matter of, of checking in with students. When it was known that Ryan was at the, uh, at the hospital, two of his best friends from the band came in said, what should we do? We're going to the hospital. I said, no, just be careful, be safe. It was all about what, what we could do to calm down or to check in with any student we could. There was a lot of phone conversation, a lot of emails. That evening, once we fully knew the magnitude of everything and, and things had been opened on campus, we sent out a note and said, hey, uh, Dave and Will will be over at AJ at 6.30 if you want to get together. Uh, and we just walked into a room that uh, full of tears. Uh, by then, we knew Stack had died, uh, and we knew the magnitude of what else had happened. It was just a matter of holding hands and and, and letting kids cry on your shoulder and things of that nature. I mean, it, it just hard to imagine. Over the course of the next week, we had to organize a a trip for about a hundred band members who went down to Augusta, Georgia, for for Stack's uh, memorial service, and uh, it, one of the most amazing. Experiences awful, but also uh, I'm so glad we went because uh, the community by then by then we were out of tears, uh, truly. And uh, you know uh, we we played for a gymnotorarium full of people. Ryan's brother uh, and sister and mom were there. Ryan is a I, I may have said Brian earlier. That's because Ryan Ryan was a twin. Stack was a twin. And uh, his brother, Brian, and I have become good friends over the years. Uh, but when I, I was asked to speak at the eulogy, and when I got up to speak, I wrote the eulogy on the way down, uh, sitting next to my wife on, on the bus. I proofed it with Charlotte. I didn't think I could do it. And uh, when I stood up at the podium, I looked down and saw Brian, Brian's twin brother. And it's like staring in the mirror, right? And I said, I can't do this without your help. And bless his heart, Brian got up, walked up, and stood at the podium with me, and, and we laughed our way through a eulogy. It was the hardest thing I've ever done. But, but may, asking those kids to uh, to go on that trip, uh, it, I didn't have to ask. They took it on themselves. Uh, that was uh, a meaningful, meaningful experience. And you're right. Events like that, whether we like it or not, uh, truly solidify a group even more. And over the next year or so, we had a memorial service that you on campus to play for. Play for. Uh, we built a house uh, along with a group called Community Housing Partners uh, in Blacksburg for a family uh, similar, if you will, to uh, Habitat. And uh, we did that in, in honor of, of SAC. Uh, his mom came up for the uh, dedication. It was, it was really moving. But, you know, 
uh, again, just like in leadership, there's no instruction manual on how to handle this. You know, you do the best you can. There was nobody else I could call and say, hey, how are you doing this? I mean, you know, I, I talked to everybody I could on campus. I talked to, to ministers and things of that nature. We just made the best decision we could. Dave, wow, that's a really powerful story. Thank you so much for sharing. Uh, and you really share it with such vulnerability and authenticity about what it's like to be amidst the tragedy, what it's like to be a leader amidst tragedy and how you led with such humility, simple actions like holding hands and caring for each other. So thank you for sharing that. So to switch gears into a, a bit of more of a positive note, I think watching your students over a 30-year career, what do you notice is the same and what do you notice is different about the kids these days? Uh, Susan's expecting a bombshell. Susan's expecting a bombshell about the 80s. It's really a, a decoded question, right? Where she's really asking about herself. No, I'm kidding. Uh, uh, so <laughs> Yeah, tell us about how kids have changed from when you first started um, to how, how it was when you retired. Well, I, th I think students always want to be something that's successful, want to be part of something that's successful and bigger than they are. You know, they, they, know, they know enough about every band. If, they, if they're going to Virginia Tech or NC State or UVA or, you know, whatever, uh, they've, they've done their homework. They know about the band, but they don't know what to expect. When you, an average high school band might be 90 to 100 players. This was 330. In many cases, their section, the piccolo section, when Susan was here and still remains, I think, is about 36 people. Some of their high school bands weren't that big. So they can't imagine that, but they, they want to be something, they want to be part of something that's successful and bigger than they are. I, I think the one difference between kids way back when and now, I said that gently, didn't I? Um, they, <laughs> I think they have they have more distractions now than ever before, and they had a lot of distractions then. But now they've got cell phones. They got they've got you know. I mean, I was over on campus yesterday to do a task, and I made the grave mistake of going over during class change time. Oh my! And the students are walking everywhere. They're they're just they're not paying attention to my vehicle, any other vehicle, you know. They're walking here, walking there. There's nobody having a conversation because they're all on the phone having a conversation with somebody somewhere else. And they're, you know, they're on bicycles, they're on foot, they're on skateboards, they're on, you name it. But so they have all these distractions. But the, the bottom line to me is that unbelievably, their ability to focus on a task like marching band is better than ever. They now learn drill with the information on their phone. So for years, I spent time, you know, making fun of people going, get your, put your phone away during rehearsal, put your phone away. And, and now we, I, I hear Polly saying, get your phone out and look at the drill. Get your, and it's just kind of crazy. But they've seen, they seem to have, uh, have won the battle of distractions. You all have seen that probably as much in the workplace as I saw it on the band field. I think one of the, the other things, there's a, there's a great unwritten cultural idea that, that certainly was there when I got here and it, it stayed the same, but I think it got better and better. And that is leave it better than when you got here. You know, kids, kids in the old days, you know, they were, they were happy to be gone. They were gone. But I think now they look at it as, you know, I, I say all the time, you're going to be a marching Virginian for far less time than you will be an alumni of this university. So enjoy your four years here because it's going to fly by and then you're going to look back with it 
like Susan is right now with the with the glossy eyes and happiness of the old days, remembering you know this and that. But uh, now they re there really is a commitment to leave it better than it was when they were here, and that's really cool. Okay, a couple of final questions that we ask all of our guests. Uh, what is the first word that comes to mind when you think of culture? Probably the same answer you get from everybody: community. Maybe not. What's the best? What's the best answer you've heard? I I don't think there's a best answer. I don't think so. I think there's everyone that we've ever done has always been different. So I think, yeah. and I think they're all right. Um, and I think community is is spot on, especially describing your experience over your career there. It, it, that, it resonates with me. Okay, if you could have a superpower, what would it be? Probably the ability to bring a smile to every face I see. Well, you've done you know, that I, to Susan and I today, so. <laughs> I'm glad I could do that. You know, the, you guys know the fish philosophy. No. Yeah, you, you probably do. You just don't know you do. There's a book, uh, and it's, it's called The Fish Philosophy, and it's about it's a, the guy who wrote it in, in the late 90s went to the Pike Place Fish Market in Seattle, and, and he was captivated by the, the fish sellers who were tossing trout and salmon through the air, you know. And it's amazing to watch these people. We've been there and seen them and listen to their commentary and laughing like maniacs. But, but the, there are four parts to the fish philosophy, and that is play, make their day, be present, and choose your attitude. And somebody, again, I stole this from somebody years ago in my own career, whether it's my career or back before then, but it's a, it's a basic philosophy about your state of mind as a leader. And it works and it's just, it's fun. And it makes everyday tasks are made fun. But look, look, the, look the book up. It's a, it's a great book. It's, it's a, it's a, you know, there are so many philosophies out there that are so deep, you need a big shovel. This isn't one of them. It's just common sense. You know, one of the things it taught me was to smile at people every day. You know, people used to walk in my office, they'd be grumpy. Man, smile. You're alive. Be happy. You know, how many times I say to people, that's a great shirt. And they look at me like, what are you on? Well, you know, I'm on happiness. On happiness. I love it. Well, Dave, thank you so much for all your time and your insights and your perseverance through some of the hard times. Really, really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and, and hear the hear more of the details from Susan too. Well, I, I hope I hope there's some little bit of something that's helpful to somebody. You know, I, I think I think what you all are doing is great and terrific. And uh, you know, people matter most. And if if it helps your 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 people who are listening to this uh, to make their people matter most, that's a win. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much, Dave. Really, really appreciate it. You guys have a spectacular day. Thank you. You too. Thanks for listening to our Cultured Podcast. If you like the show and want to learn more, check out our Cultured website, culturedcast.com. And please follow us on iTunes. If you'd like to know more about our research, visit eaglehillconsulting.com slash culture.